a lot of these drugs were invented, LSD, in 1930s, 1938. Psilocybin exists in nature and magic mushrooms and has actually been used for thousands of years, particularly by indigenous communities. MDMA was synthesized in the 50s. So they've existed for a while. And then they were outlawed in the US in 1971 by President Nixon. These drugs were declared Schedule 1, meaning of no medical use. And so there was really a prohibition on research for a long time. And then they very, very slowly started up again. And gradually, the results from those studies were really pretty exciting, suggesting that various psychedelics looked like they were promising treatments for a host of different mental health conditions. That's Olivia Goldhill, an investigative reporter covering the health industry, including biotech, pharma, and inescapably, the global pandemic for STAT, a media company focused on finding and telling compelling stories about health, medicine, and scientific discovery. Before joining STAT, Olivia was a science reporter at Quartz and a features writer at The Daily Telegraph in London. She was an Aspen Ideas Scholar in 2017. I'm Luann Heinen, and this is the Business Group on Health podcast, conversations with experts on the most important health and well-being issues facing employers. My guest is Olivia Goldhill, and we'll talk about the race to legalize psychedelics as mental health drugs, which products, why now, and what it could mean for patients and payers. Olivia, welcome to the podcast. Hi, thanks so much for having me. I'm really looking forward to this. We're going to talk about psychedelics, something you've written about extensively. And we're interested because approval of some of these compounds as legitimate drug therapies is being seriously considered by the FDA. Well, let's start with what are psychedelics? Yeah, so very broadly speaking, these are drugs that create altered states of consciousness, changes in your senses and, and emotions, thinking, you know, your experience of time. And, you know, they're known kind of in, I guess, um, general non-medical culture as, as recreational, sometimes spiritual drugs, MDMA, LSD, magic mushrooms are all psychedelics. And these are all the drugs that are also being studied now in clinical trials. So for magic mushrooms, it's, it's psilocybin is the main compound, the psychedelic compound there that is in pretty advanced clinical trials. MDMA has already had the results from one phase three, which is the most advanced clinical trial. And LSD recently also got approval for a, a phase 2B, which there's still more studies to do beyond that, but it is pretty sizable. So these same kind of psychedelic recreational drugs are now being studied from a clinical perspective. And would any of these drugs be dispensed without counseling and supervision on site? So at the moment, it's still being worked out. Most of the clinical trials will look at these drugs in conjunction with therapists. There would be a medical team that would evaluate you, you know, before you have the um, psychedelics, but you would work with the therapist beforehand, during and afterwards. You know, there are people looking at ideally in the future, you know, could these drugs be accessible just in a standard doctor's office in the middle of some huge states like Texas, it might be hard to get a therapist to go everywhere. And, you know, what kind of potential monitoring would there need to be in place to make that safe, both professional and potentially some kind of software. But at the moment, yes, for the most part, there are therapist oversight and definitely medical oversight as well. So startups and funds 
focused on turning psychedelic compounds into approved medicines have raised, as I understand it, hundreds of millions of dollars. I even saw one estimate. It was a $2 billion forecast for 2021. Is that in the ballpark? Definitely. The psychedelic medicine market is expected to be valued at, I think, $7 billion by 2027. That's according to um, one set of analysis from um, DataBridge Market Research. But there are four companies that have a valuation of a billion dollars each. And a year ago, the total market cap was probably around a billion dollars. So the fact that there are now four separate companies worth that much gives you a sense of how quickly it is growing. It's amazing. It's really amazing. Those are staggering numbers. And especially when the narrative arc for this category of drug is pretty stunning. When you think about these compounds were invented back in the early part of the 20th century, I think, and they've been on quite a journey since then. Would would you like to recap some of that for us? Yeah, a lot of these drugs were invented, LSD, in 1930s, 1938. Psilocybin exists in nature and magic mushrooms and has actually been used for thousands of years, particularly by indigenous communities. MDMA was synthesized in the 50s. So they've existed for a while. And then they were outlawed in the US in 1971 by President Nixon. And as part of that ruling, you know, was part of the war on drugs and criminalization of a lot of drugs. But he stated as part of that legal classification, these drugs were declared schedule one, meaning of no medical use. And because of that, it was incredibly hard for researchers to study the drugs, you know, if they've been blanket declared, you know, medically useless, why study them? And so there was really a prohibition on research for a long time. A couple of decades, I think, with no studies whatsoever in the US. And then they very, very slowly started up again in the late 1990s, starting to get very small studies in the early 2000s. And gradually, the results from those studies were really pretty exciting, suggesting that various psychedelics looked like they were promising treatments for a host of different mental health conditions. And so more and more trials have been done, slowly getting larger. 2016, starting to see larger phase one studies that then became the groundwork for these clinical trials with for-profit companies seeing the potential to invest and bring drugs to market, as well as non-profits that are interested. So MDMA already has one phase three trial, will likely have the results from another within a year or so, and two phase three trials plus some of the background studies could be grounds for approval. And psilocybin is a couple of years after that. So the FDA has given these drugs to uh, these treatments. It's called breakthrough therapy designation, which just means it will get kind of something of a fast track through the drug approval process. It's a sign that the FDA is really open to these treatments. The one psychedelic that has been approved, esketamine from Johnson Johnson, is a version of ketamine or kind of a modified version of ketamine. So the FDA is open to it. The clinical trials are advancing pretty quickly. And it's, I mean, you can never say for certain, of course, you have to see what the studies show and what the results are. But it looks increasingly likely that more and more of these psychedelic drugs will be approved in the coming year. So let's just go back and revisit some of the turning points in that story that you outlined. So I mean, there were the early days of kind of consciousness raising and the 60s, 70s, 
There was the sort of party drug use that came a little bit later, and then these really fell out of favor. Criminalization, stigmatization, researchers couldn't even research them, couldn't even mention it. To now, I mean, Johns Hopkins University was one of the first to really, I think, get grants and come out with positive studies on these some of these classes of drugs. Mm-hmm. And now Harvard and, and other major universities, NIH is behind it. You know, FDA is seriously looking at it. There's been a polarizing debate over psychedelics. How do you explain that? I guess I'll give you two responses. The first is, I think it's pretty incredible that these drugs represent the first new medical breakthrough in mental health treatment and depression treatment for more than three decades. A lot of people don't realize that, you know, ever since Prozac was invented, other antidepressants are are variations on that. And psychedelics represent an entirely new way of treating mental health that is potentially hugely effective and could make a massive difference for a large number of people. You know, if you look at the range of conditions being studied depression, post-traumatic stress disorder, anxiety disorder, if the results continue to be as strong as they are, these drugs could really help a lot of people and be major breakthrough. The other thing I wish people understood is nothing in medicine, psychedelics included, is black and white. These drugs were demonized for so long and declared medically useless so that they couldn't even be studied and were seen as incredibly dangerous. And I just think that's not productive look. Very clearly, if you're just looking at the studies being developed, you know, some of these drugs definitely do have medical potential. But then the flip side of that is there can also be people who think psychedelics are going to cure everyone and they're absolutely amazing and everyone should be doing them all the time. That's actually also really dangerous. And therapists talk about some patients having a disappointment reaction. If you think about who's going into clinical trials, for example, for treatment-resistant depression, there are people with really long-term chronic mental health conditions who haven't had relief from elsewhere, and they really push to be in these clinical trials, and they think that one session is going to absolutely change everything. And that kind of level of expectation can be quite difficult to meet. And I just think all drugs, you have to be careful, you have to evaluate, you have to look at the individual and the context and how they're being used and the therapist helping them. And with everything, there has to be a level of nuance. And I wish people were open to that and neither absolutely for or absolutely against psychedelics. Well, so let's talk about how just that groundswell and the role that advocates played, the role that, I don't know, investors played, or was it really just about the scientific evidence? The science definitely came first. I mean, a lot of those early trials were supported and funded by nonprofit organizations, MAPS, HEFTA, USONA, HEFTA Institute, and USONA are the three main ones. MAPS is decades old. They've been operating and advocating for more research for long, long periods where it looked like it wasn't going to happen. So definitely there was advocacy behind funding the research. And studying psychedelics is pretty expensive. Just because they are Schedule One drugs, it means you have to use highly specialized labs to create them in very, very pure standards. It's called GMP, Good Manufacturing Practices Standards, for um, 
some of these trials, I think it would cost around $7,000 a gram to produce the level of highly specialized psilocybin, which is not what it would cost should these drugs be approved, but is an indication of the expense. So definitely nonprofits behind them. But Johns Hopkins and Imperial in London and probably NYU as well were some of the first universities. And starting around 2010, maybe 2013, 16, that's when studies started to get bigger. You'd maybe have like quite prestigious professors at these universities looking into them. And the first for-profit company, Compass Pathways, they launched in... um, I can't remember if it was 2017, 2018, but they were the first for quite a while. And really, it's only in the past year or so that more and more companies have got involved, have got investment. It used to be quite difficult, I think, to, well, Peter Thiel was an early investor in Compass Pathways. So, you know, there have been big names who have been involved for a while. But I think stigma used to be a major challenge for people when they were fundraising. And that's much less the case now. You know, the stigma is fading. I will say as well, Michael Pollan's book, How to Change Your Mind, was a huge success. And I think that was a turning point in how popular culture saw psychedelics and potential for these drugs. I think that was probably a turning point in cultural acceptance. Yeah. And that that book came out in 2018, was a New York Times number one bestseller. Mm-hmm. Yeah, hugely popular. Well, in addition, let's not forget the role that veterans have played as advocates in the drive to legalize psychedelics, um, particularly for benefits easing post-traumatic stress, anxiety experiences tied to their military service. Absolutely. And so, yeah, the most advanced trials in psychedelics at the moment is MDMA as treatment for post-traumatic stress disorder. Veterans suffer terribly from post-traumatic stress disorder. It has massive impact and there's a large amount of interest from veterans in these potential treatments. Currently in the US, um, there is even compassionate use for MDMA, meaning that if you have PTSD and other treatments don't work, you could be allowed to have access to MDMA treatment. And I think Israel is another one of the countries at the forefront of this research. Also, with PTSD and MDMA, I believe it is legal there. And that, again, I think speaks to they have a large number of soldiers and veterans and the trauma experienced by people there. So there's definitely a strong link and um, veterans stand to benefit quite considerably to have this groundbreaking new treatment for post-traumatic stress disorder. So let's dive into the conditions that these therapies would benefit. And also, who would these drugs not be for? They're contraindications that are already known. So we know first is post-traumatic stress disorder. Mm-hmm. And you've mentioned treatment-resistant depression, mm-hmm. generalized anxiety disorder. Yeah. MDMA for post-traumatic stress disorder. Psilocybin is being studied for both treatment depression disorder and psilocybin also for major depressive disorder. So, you know, both depression is just kind of a different way of determining who would be eligible. And for treatment-resistant disorder, you have to have had tried other treatments and had them not be successful, such as antidepressants. LSD for generalized anxiety disorder, that's the phase 2B trial that just got approval recently. But then there are smaller studies 
kind of looking at a whole collection of different mental health conditions. So um, anorexia, addiction, OCD, alcoholism. And Johns Hopkins, one of the first universities to research this, you know, they in 2019, got a pretty major $17 million grant for a center devoted to psychedelics. And I think a lot of the thinking behind some of their research is that this is a new mental health paradigm and potentially these drugs could be useful for a huge collection of different mental health related conditions. I mean, they're also looking into, these are very early stage studies, but things like Alzheimer's disease and Lyme disease. But I think potentially these drugs could be useful for quite a range of different conditions. These are completely different from any type of drug currently used to treat mental health. Yes, very, very different. It's worth saying that we don't understand the specifics even of, of how antidepressants work, you know, mental health and the drugs we use as treatment, they something of a mystery. But yeah, antidepressants, you take them over a considerable period. Um, a lot of people might be on them for, for years or, or decades. And psychedelics, they are intended, you know, in clinical trials, it's often three sessions, you know, which would be weeks or months apart, but they're very fast acting, you know, so it, um, and the sessions can take six hours, you know, psilocybin, it has an effect for that length of time and you know you're under supervision for that length of time but immediately after it you would start to feel the effects so they work very differently it's often around kind of um changing your perspective and, and rewriting personal narrative and they work in conjunction with therapy so you would have a therapist with you often when you're taking the psychedelic and definitely afterwards to try and integrate some of the experiences. So a lot of people refer to this as psychedelic assisted therapy rather than just the psychedelics working by themselves. Um, you did mention before, and I forgot to answer about who is this not for. And I think a lot of the research is very cautious about not enrolling people who have a first degree relative with psychosis, such as schizophrenia or people themselves with schizophrenia or maybe being in a manic state, that's a population for whom there's a lot of caution around using these drugs. There can be contraindications around if you have very high blood pressure as well or, or cardiovascular conditions, potentially even we don't know if that's because of the drugs themselves or maybe just a sense of anxiety that can come on um, depending on how the psychedelic experience goes. So it's definitely not going to be for everyone. And also, I think a lot of people say, if you're in the middle of a very challenging experience, it could be difficult to have psychedelic treatment. It might be more be something to wait until you're a sta more stable place afterwards, you know, and if you have symptoms then of post-traumatic stress disorder to consider it. So not for absolutely everyone, but these drugs are very safe in terms of physical side effects. There aren't very many contraindications. So there's a pretty wide population of people who could potentially be using them. So interesting, though, just some of the differences that you called out. And first of all, a huge attractor is this um, not quite one and done, but short-term therapy. It's not a chronic uh, forever thing like so many current medications are. I mean, that's got great appeal. Mm. And then you're talking about like the length of time in therapy one-on-one -on -one, or in the session, hours at a time. We don't really have a model for that, how that works. Must be a lot of training involved. And also it seems a greater unpredictability. 
I think that's really interesting and I think that's something a lot of institutions are thinking about and I really hope will continue to think about because it's not just the drug and the impact of the drug on the person, but the impact of the therapist too. How do you train them? How do you make sure it can be standardized? There's variations in in quality, of course. Um, There's also potential for misconduct and, you know, how do you evaluate for that and, and prevent it from happening? So I think... The role of the therapist is absolutely crucial and there um, with the patient during the session, but then also it, what generally tends to happen is it's called integration work afterwards, or you'll meet with the therapist to discuss what you learned during the psychedelic experience and how to make sense of it, how to integrate it into your life. That is it's still very much up for debate how these therapists will be trained. There are training programs under development. They have to have uh, be a licensed mental health professional, for example. I know there are some institutions that are considering that the therapist could work in two-person teams where one would be licensed and the other wouldn't. And then there are some companies, Compass, for example, is considering would you not need to have a therapist with you during the psychedelic experience? You you would still afterwards for integration work, but during the experience, you know, could you be monitored remotely and, and have a therapist nearby if needed or kind of someone monitoring your responses, but not necessarily sitting with you all the time? So yeah, there is still a lot of questions, I think, around exactly how the therapist will work at scale, which I think is hugely important. I wanted to ask you about potential end-of-life applications. I've also read about people who have anxiety near the end of life and have had very positive experiences with psychedelic therapy. Are you familiar with that? Yeah. So some of the earliest research was looking at end-of-life anxiety um, and depression and psychedelics as a way to help people I guess with the trauma, let's say, if you have terminal cancer and if it's terminal, making the most of the, your end of life and, and kind of connections with people. There was also a right to try law that was passed under the Trump administration that said if you're terminally ill, patients could try drugs that are currently in clinical trials, but are unproven. And there was a lawsuit because psychedelics were not included in that to say that they absolutely should be, and that people who are terminally ill should be able to have access to these clinical drugs. Well, pivoting back to the employer perspective, what are some things that employers might need to encounter or face down the road? I mean, companies in their benefits planning programs and with their PBM, pharmacy benefit manager and health plan partners, I mean, think about, is this a category or an area of treatment where we should create a centers of excellence program? What kind of prior authorization or criteria up front, which are provided by FDA, but what are the things that they should be thinking about as this may come to pass? Yeah, well, I think a good amount of it I am expecting, hoping, uh, will come from the FDA and from from the REM, just in terms of things such as, you know, like how the therapist should be trained. And I think it is generally important that this is integrated in healthcare generally. Um, You know, so maybe there will be discussions with physicians and with other therapists. A lot of people say, you know, you wouldn't necessarily go for this treatment without talking with your existing healthcare team. But generally speaking, this is the first new model of mental health treatment for 
30 years, you know, more than 30 years since Prozac was approved. All the other antidepressants are kind of variations on the same thing. So I think if these drugs are approved and if the trials go well, it's, you know, potentially hugely helpful to a really large number of people. And it's definitely worth considering, you know, how they can be offered to people and how insurance can cover it as well for greatest equity. Which reminds me of something else I've read is that the individual, the patient mindset is really important that there's some preparation even before you show up, you know, with the therapist in the session, either remotely or in person. Are you familiar with that concept of mindset and preparation? Yeah. So this is kind of how the experience is very much part of, um, you know, talking with a therapist in general and, you know, depending on, on the patient needs, you know, and that's definitely the kind of thing that um, you would talk to a therapist about ahead of time. And there can be therapists who are especially trained and, and attuned to responding to different conditions. Um, and yeah, I think the idea, you know, the setting of uh, the room as well is uh, very important. So, you know, you want the patient to be, you know, be able to choose, you know, the lighting and the music and the relaxation. Um, and it is, I think, generally um, a good thing for the patient to be feeling like relaxed and calm and, and safe and comfortable before the experience starts and, and that the therapist has an understanding of, of some of the issues to be talked about. I will, will say from having spoken to therapists that for a lot of patients, this isn't necessarily, the psychedelic experience itself is not necessarily fun or pleasurable. You know, it can be, you know, confronting, old, very upsetting uh, memories. It can be a very difficult experience, but that is still beneficial. And that sometimes patients who have difficult psychedelic experiences will say it helped them the most um, just to reconfront those old traumas. So yeah, all of that work before and afterwards can kind of help prepare a patient and then make sense of it. Just yeah, a whole new informed consent needed for this. Yeah. What else haven't we spoken about but should? One thing that's very interesting in this space is, uh, so typically when it, when a company is developing a drug, um, you know, they invest quite a lot into the clinical trials. Um, and then when it's approved, they tend to have IP over it so that they, uh, set the price and, you know, have, um, the monopoly on the market and, and kind of bring in rewards for them, themselves and the, the investors. And psychedelics are really interesting and unusual because, you know, as we talked about, well, psilocybin exists naturally. It was first synthesized nearly a century ago. Um, you know, MDMA was synthesized decades and LSD decades ago. Um, and so all of these drugs are in the public domain, meaning there's not a straightforward patent you can do on them. And there are very interesting attempts to patent, you know, the creation of drugs, like different methods of creating the drugs, or even one company, Compass Pathways, they put in a patent placeholder application that kind of looked at patenting the particular environment where psychedelics took place, you know, what, what the colors of the room was like and the materials were like, which was seen as pretty controversial. Who knows if that patent will actually be put in or approved. But um <laughs> Wow, that is well, okay, so with a market of a couple billion going up to projected seven billion in a few years, it seems that investors must be fairly confident this is the strategy is going to yield fruit. 
there have been challenges as well, legal challenges, especially on psilocybin. So I think it remains to be seen, you know, how, um, what gets approved there, what IP is available there. I think there's definitely the sense that there will be a market and companies will be able to offer these drugs and that will be lucrative, whether or not you'll be able to successfully patent some of the kind of oldest existing drugs, I think is still being figured out. But then there are other, you know, people talk about second generation, third generation psychedelics. So um, second generation, for example, we talked about how long psilocybin is, like six hours. Um, you know, if you could modify it so that the effects were just one hour, that would be a lot more cost effective and easier to roll out. Those are some of kind of the second generation drugs. And then third generation entirely new molecules. Um, so there's definitely, I think, a sense that this space is going to keep growing uh, with a lot of room for investment and improvement. And in some of those later drugs, there's a lot more room for patents that are kind of more secure. Well, thank you so much, Olivia. Fascinating to connect with you today. Really enjoyed the conversation. Yeah, it was really great to talk with you. Thank you so much for all your questions. I've been speaking with Olivia Goldhill, investigative reporter at STAT and the author of The Shroom Boom, The Meteoric Rise of the Psychedelic Medicine Industry, a report published in 2021 exploring the use of psychedelics as a medical therapy. You can learn more about her work at stat.com, oliviagoldhill.com, and at Olivia Goldhill on Twitter. I'm Luann Heinen. This podcast is produced by Business Group on Health with Connected Social Media. If you're listening on Apple Podcasts and like what you heard, please rate us and leave a review. Thank you.